Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, chaplain, professor, and writer and speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we plan to discuss the sixth of seven deadly sins, and this one is the sin of envy. Our purpose in this series is to help people grow in Christian virtue and to rid their lives of the vices that so often cripple spiritual growth. And so these sins, if you aren't familiar already, they underlie most other sins and they can hide inside of us for years without being addressed. And so last episode, we discussed greed, which has some overlap with envy. So that'll be interesting to discuss. So Aaron, what distinction can we make between greed and envy, if any? Well, both greed and envy are covetous in nature. And so that's where they overlap. They're they're a violation of God's commands not to covet. But envy is also a distinct word used in the scriptures. So there's some distinction between greed and envy. Very simplistically, greed is wanting stuff, too much stuff, an excessive amount of stuff, generally physical, tangible stuff, money, possessions, material possessions, these sorts of things. But it doesn't necessarily imply that to be greedy, you are upset with another person who has a lot of stuff. However, envy is a sin within which one is specifically upset with what another person has, both in the tangible realm and also in the immaterial realm. They might want to own the other person's possessions, but they also might want to own the other person's, or maybe own is the wrong word, but they also might want to have the other person's beauty or dashing good looks, or personality characteristics, or ministry opportunities, or financial opportunities, and it kind of gets under your skin and you begin to get upset and bitter that another person has another person has what you want. In the New Testament, the word uh, that is used for envy can also be translated as grudge or spite. So that helps us to understand that envy is a sin that's directed toward another person or group of people that has something that you want. So greed is a desire to accumulate material possessions, money, furniture, vehicles, houses, property, whatever that might be. But envy is wanting specifically that which another person possesses, and not just in the tangible realm, but also the characteristics that that person might possess. So for example, men and women are obviously different in this regard. My wife and I were chatting about this a little bit in the way home yesterday. But for example, a woman might be envious of another woman's beauty. It just really bothers her that that woman is beautiful. For a man, he might really be envious that another man has a position of authority or respect or that people look to him for direction. It kind of gets under his skin. Within the context of the church, one person that's leading a ministry might look at another person that's leading a ministry and be envious because more people showed up to their event than showed up to mine event. 
or you might compare your children to other people's children and you're envious because that person's kid is the valedictorian and my kid you know wasn't accepted as the valedictorian and bitterness often erupts from uh that that sin so envy we could say manifests itself fundamentally in contempt in contempt which then unfortunately not always but often leads to actions to destroy the other person to destroy their reputation to take their possessions maybe through the sin of theft or to undermine their relationships to actually go after them to to speak behind their back negatively well that person is this or that person's that or to assume motives or to plant seeds of doubt about the person's integrity now an illustration of the the greatness of the sin and this is one of the reasons why we need to talk about it it's not a minor sin it's not an uncommon sin it's not one of those rare sins that people hardly ever commit it's an incredibly common sin but perhaps one because it's very internal in nature it's it's it relates to our motives it relates to the internal dynamics of our own lives we can hide it for example it's a sin that is incredibly deadly in our lives and needs to be addressed to illustrate the greatness of this sin in human life in the gospels we're told that envy was actually the sin that under uh girded the successful attempts to crucify our lord so in matthew 27:18 it says for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up so that's that's why the pharisees conspired with the romans to put jesus to death you might say well in part it was because they thought he was speaking blasphemy okay granted they did accuse him of that. In part, he was violating Sabbath laws. Okay, we could accuse him of that, but so were all the Roman soldiers. So were many other citizens that weren't righteous Jews. But what really got under the skin of Jesus' opponents was his success, was his ministry, was his claims, mm -hmm. was his miracles that just really rubbed them the wrong way. And so they... They grew in their contempt for Christ, and that's ultimately why they irrationally put him on the cross, even willing to have him die and a known murderer be released from custody. That's an irrational act. So in summary, envy is resentment. It's contempt toward another and a desire to have what they have, often paired to a willingness to undermine their reputation or their livelihood, or uh, to, to even put them in a position where they lose what they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so greed being more about stuff itself and envy being more about relational stuff in terms of what somebody else has. I see this with my kids where they they don't want something until somebody else has it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And that's how <laughs> so we yeah, So that would be envy, but let's say you take them to the store and they just want everything on the shelf. That's not necessarily envy, that's just greed. That's right. Give me everything on the shelf, Dad. I want this, I want that. That's greed. But they might be content, you know, kid A might be content if kid B gets a gift and they get the same gift. There's no competition there, but envy is especially devious because it's a, it's a contempt for what another person actually possesses or owns. Mm -hmm. 
So let's uh, maybe think, because I know we exist in a lot of different spheres and, and different relationships. So that's like a, a child relationship we're talking about. But we might see envy crop up in different ways depending on the context. So what are some examples perhaps of envy that might arise in different situations. So we always have to be careful judging motive and assuming motive. We have to exercise some discernment here in terms of giving even illustrations of what envy might look like because, it, again, it can be hidden. It can be concealed. People tend to be fairly masterful at hiding and pretending, mm -hmm. po being posers, mm -hmm. pretending that they're being spiritual. Um, it's, it's interesting. I have a little debate going on on Facebook about big churches and small churches, and um, some would suggest that Anyone that passes a big church is innately prideful, and I, I would suggest that's an unwise and unfair criticism. I mean, could that be possible? Of course, but a person could be pastor of 25 people and be very prideful because 25 people listen to their sermons. Um, so pride pride is an issue that we, we have to be careful about, but we, we have to we also have to be careful about assuming it in others because I've, you know, I suggested to one fellow that envy <laughs> could be the the opposite problem. Maybe someone who's pastoring a small church and looks down the road and sees that there's a big church says, "Well, that's that's a prideful pastor." Well, they could easily retort, "Dude, maybe you're envious, right?" So we have to be careful when we wade into judgments about people's motives, and envy is often very much of a motive word. So we need to speak in generalities. That's my preamble. But I also want to say at the beginning that I have learned over the years that while there is a whole variety of different personalities out there, people that handle themselves differently emotionally, intellectually, that come at things from very different worldviews, that come from a different, different religious perspectives— we often accentuate those differences. In spite of those differences, people are more alike than they are different. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. And when you, this is a, a tip for those of you that counsel others, the more people you counsel, the more you can discern behavior because people are so much alike and the tactics they use are very similar. The responses, the excuses they use are very similar. The more you counsel, the easier it gets because mm -hmm. very rarely do you run into something that's genuinely out of the box. People are more like than they are different. And so when we speak to issues like envy, we can look back on hundreds of relationships that we've had and we can, I think, draw some helpful illustrations for people to be aware of. The very first baby born on planet Earth, of course, the first human created was Adam the second human created was Eve, but the first baby born on planet Earth was Cain. And Cain killed the very first baby. Think about this. Committed the ultimate sin, murder. He, he killed his brother Abel out of envy. He was upset that Abel received a blessing from God that he did not. And there there's some variety of interpretations on whether the nature of Cain's sacrifice was inappropriate in light of the circumstances and Abel's was more appropriate. So there's there's some exegesis to be done there in terms of discerning the why question. Like why did God reject 
Cain's offering. But we, if we look at Cain's response, one thing that's pretty clear is his response is steeped in envy. He was upset that his brother Abel received something that he didn't. So this characteristic of envy was present in the first baby ever born on planet Earth, and it has manifested itself time and time again in all sorts of relationships. Let's start with the family. In family relationships, both within families and also as families interact with other families, there often seems to be an inability to truly celebrate the accomplishments of other families or other people within our families. And this is because of the sin of envy. So for example, parents uh, who, let's suppose that you are proud of your child because they got an A in school and you jump on social media and you post, hey, congrats to little Bobby, he got an A in mathematics. Or you're in a conversation with another parent, you're like, hey, I'm so proud of my son, he works so hard to get an A in mathematics. If the person on the receiving end of that isn't characterized by envy, you're gonna hear something like, hey, congratulations, hey, way to go, hey, that's good news. But if the person has envy in their lives, you're going to hear things like, oh, well, 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 my my little Johnny, he also got an A, or he got an A plus, or you, your post is followed up with people like, we call it hijacking the post. Yeah. They hijack the post, and then they want to tell you about their accomplishments, the accomplishments of their own child. And I always find that, I think it's socially awkward, but it's also... It's also symptomatic of envy, or at least can be symptomatic of envy. So if you want to brag on your kid, or if you want to compliment someone for an accomplishment, that's a great thing to do. It's a wonderful thing to do. It's encouraging. But create your own post <laughs> or serve it for a save it for a, a, another conversation. And then in marriage relationships, sometimes single people are very envious of married couples. And I I totally understand that. Many single people want to be married and maybe have struggled to find an appropriate partner for life. And I get that. And that there can be pain and angst involved in that. But don't act begrudgingly towards someone who has found their soulmate, their life partner. You should celebrate it. In fact, I think it's an error just pastorally for churches to you know, cater to single people as if somehow they're second-class citizens. And I also think it's an error when single people don't actively go out of the way to minister to married people. We are a community, and married people can bless singles, and guess what? Surprise, surprise, single people can bless married people. Mm-hmm. So in a in a church culture where both parties are seeking to work together, you want there to be a mutuality, not an envy, not a competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Of course, then, and this ties into adulterous relationships, you can also have times where someone who is married isn't content with their spouse, they envy someone else's spouse, they pursue that spouse, there's an adulterous relationship and everyone suffers. Uh, Envying wealth, someone buys a house, you're like, oh, I wish I could have a house that big. Mm. How about just celebrating the fact that they got a house? How about when you go to someone's property and you're like, wow, they got a big property or they have a nice car in the driveway or wow, they're a really good decorator, or, oh, I love their lawn, or whatever it might be, celebrate that. Mm -hmm. But the person who's marked by envy starts to despise and show contempt and often even might accuse that person of wrongful gain Mm -hmm. because they have possessions that they desperately want. Uh, You know that I'm pro 
big family. You know, I often tell people have more babies. But what we have to be careful about in saying that is communicating that somehow big families are better. Mm-hmm. Some people can't have children, and we need to honor that. Some people can only have one or two. Some people seem to be able to have an endless number of children mm-hmm. with no hiccups along the way. But we have to be a little bit careful, too, about idolizing big families. It's like, well, look at all the kids I have. You know, I have five kids, or I have six kids, or I have 10 kids, or I have 12 kids, or I heard of a family lately that had 18 kids. And there can be a certain pride attached to that, and those that maybe can't have children or have fewer children might start to envy that. And Mm -hmm. we shouldn't do that. Celebrate what another person has rather than envying what another person has. And again, as I mentioned this before, this varies age to age. When you're a teenager, there's things you might envy that you and I would be like, I have no interest in that. It varies by your sex. There's things a a woman might have uh, envy in another woman that is different than what men might envy in in other men. So these are things for us to consider, kind of expressions, I guess you could say, of envy in family relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever heard the term sour grapes? Oh, yeah. So I, I was talking to my kids reading through the fables, whatever else, and there's this fox going for the grapes, right? And he can't get them. And so then he's like, I didn't ever want them anyways. And he's like, they were sour grapes. And I'm like, as you're talking, I'm thinking that's with envy. When we envy what somebody else has, you might despise the person, but you can also start to despise the thing. And you're like, I didn't want it anyways because I can't have it. Yeah. Right. And it's just this interesting dynamic that goes on. Yeah. Maybe this isn't the greatest language, but I, because it's not biblical language per se, but I'll just use language that maybe the modern hearer can relate to. It's almost like we're, we're thinking about the psychology of sin. Mm. Like what are the mental processes that take place behind our sin and how do we get from, from a place of righteousness to a place of sinfulness? And I, I do believe that it's, it assists us, it's helpful for us to think through, why, why do I, you might be bitter towards someone and you're confessing the bitterness, but have you actually considered why you're bitter toward mm-hmm. that person? And so you might have bitterness, which is a sin, but sins often are stacked on sins. And bitterness, for example, can be a result of envy. So now I have two sins to confess, mm-hmm. envy. And there's actually some other things in there too, a lack of contentment in God, we'll get to that. But minimally you have envy, and then envy might lead to bitterness, for example. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And then in employment, most people that are listening to this podcast work if you don't get a job. You're working or you're at least being educated to go into some career. And when I say work, I also know that um, parents that stay home with their children and are caring for their children and homeschooling and all that, that's, that's work. So we're not just talking about gainful employment that has a paycheck attached to it. But in employment... And and if you're in an organization where there's more than more than one person employed, someone's probably going to be the boss. And in a larger organization, there could be a whole series of tiers of management, presidents and vice presidents and managers and directors and supervisors and on and on and on. Or if you're in the military, there's generals and there's colonels and there's majors and on and on and on. There's there's structure. 
And in in positions of employment, people, not everybody can be the top dog, so to speak. People will get promoted. And that can often create envy in people's lives. Perhaps you've experienced this whereby someone in your place of employment who maybe had in your mind fewer qualifications or less time in the job was promoted past you. Now we know that in a sinful world there can be nepotism and people can be promoted that are not qualified and that can create some challenges. But suppose someone's promoted that's legitimately better at the job than you are and it causes envy in your life your life and you want you want what they have you're upset you show contempt to them so you start to disrespect them so this is this is the thing right we in different spheres of life in the family and employment we can easily fall into the trap of of envy instead of celebrating the fact that there's always going to be people in the world. Here, here's a helpful thing for us to remember. There's al- always going to be people in the world that have more than we have, that live longer than we do, that are healthier than we are, that are better looking than we are, that are smarter than we are. There's always going to be people that you meet along the way that are going to be ahead of you in one or many areas of life. And you have to make a decision. And the younger you make this decision, the, be- the easier your life's going to be. Am I always going to spend my life wanting what other people have? Or am I going to be, am I going to learn from them and certainly have desires and aspirations? There's nothing wrong with that. But celebrate what other people have and also be content with what I have. Instead of always sticking our neck out, craning our neck, looking around the curve in the road, waiting for you know the next big break. And then when it doesn't happen, we're, we're thoroughly disappointed. So th- this, this is the, this is true even economically. I remember watching recently a video of someone that was debating. I can't remember who it was, but they were debating a. Um, it was a Q and A, is what it was, and a student stood up that was clearly a socialist, like a kind of a neo neo communist, you might call them, and they were arguing that no matter where you work, the owners and the um, the workers should get the same wage. And the person responding did a really good job. Basically, it might have been Ben Shapiro, but I don't recall exactly. Basically saying, are you kidding me? So someone that shows up that has no no risk, that has invested no money, that isn't at risk of losing their house if the company collapses, that checks in at nine and checks out at five, doesn't have to worry about board meetings and infrastructure and economic collapse, should get the exact same thing as a person who's essentially laid their life on the line for this corporation that they're running or they've started, who's providing employment to other people. And we know this is economically the socialist mindset, that we need to flatten the playing field, that nobody can ever be ahead of anyone else. And it's it's couched in often in a language of justice and equality. But if you peel back the layers, it's actually envy. Mm-hmm. Now, we do believe, of course, that it's, Fairness requires an employer to be fair with their employee. But the reality is a person who has invested more time, more of their talent, more of their treasure should deserve a greater reward for it. And that's just the way it is. And that's the way it should be. Well, what I'd like to do now is maybe get a little more uh, personal. 
and I want to talk about another area where envy often raises its ugly head, mm-hmm. and that is in church ministry. Yep, I thought so. I've seen this time and time again, and I wanted to address it. This It's especially heinous in church ministry because church ministry is specifically and deliberately focused on equipping people for the work of the ministry, preaching the word of God, praying, evangelizing the lost. But I think there is a lot, we have a problem actually in the West with envy between a lot of Christians. Now, before before we talk more about this, what I'm not suggesting is that playful competitiveness is out of bounds. I think there's a certain sense in which playful, loving competitiveness is really helpful to push us forward in all spheres of life. We see this in sports, a bunch of guys, couple teams battling it out on the ice rink. They're not gonna kill each other afterwards. They're gonna high five in the lineup afterwards and congratulate the other team for winning. They might be a little bummed out they didn't win, but there's not there's no vindictiveness, or at least there shouldn't be vindictiveness. Unless you're in, in church hockey. Sports. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh man, I remember years ago there was a baseball team in in uh, Christian Baseball League up near London, Ontario. They had to close it down because there was more fights than the than the uh, quote unquote secular league. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll just give one example of this. When I I was pastoring years ago at um, as like an associate pastor. I was the associate youth pastor at a, a Baptist church. And this Baptist church, I, I heard these stories. So if you're listening to my podcast and you you were in that church and you know more of the details and I'm getting the details a little bit wrong, please forgive me. But the best as I can recollect, I was told that I think it was in the 1960s, there was a very dynamic pastor in that church that had a real heart for Sunday school. So best best as I can recall, they got permission to use the city of Windsor's buses on Sunday to pick kids up for Sunday school. And apparently they had so many kids packed into this church for Sunday school. There was literally Sunday school classrooms in hall, like stairwells. Wow. There, there could have been a thousand kids in this at the time very moderately sized building. And what I was told is that in order to really kind of increase the numbers and really get people on board, is this pastor had a good friend who was pastoring a church a couple of, maybe about an hour and a half away, I think it was in Sarnia. And on occasion, they would actually bring telephones into their services and they would, let's say the church in Windsor had, I'll just make up a number, 800 kids, and the church in Sarnia had 850. They would call each other during the services and like, how many did you get? How many did you get? Oh, you won today. And it was like this, everyone sort of laughed and it, it was like a, a good spirited competition yeah. to for both churches to say, hey, we're, we're gonna do our best to get as many kids in Sunday school exposed to the word of God as we possibly can. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is what we should all be doing, but I don't think that was a bad thing. And it, it served, it was, it was well-intentioned, it was loving, it was playful, it, it made both churches better, and ultimately it served to advance the cause of the gospel and many young people were positively impacted through that. 
That's different than trash talking another church and accusing them of false teaching or wrongdoing because you're jealous that people are more people are going there than are than are coming to you. So I think it's fair game. We see this in the New Testament. Diotrephes was chastised. Alexander the coppersmith was chastised. Peter was rebuked. It's it's legit to chastise false teaching by other teachers or uh, other Christians, but it's not legit to envy them and to badmouth them because they happen to be growing, and maybe you're not growing to the degree that you think you should. That's envy, and it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be repented of. There's a little dynamic that takes place at pastors' conferences Mm. and in denominations that lay people may or may not be aware of, but I'll spill the beans. And we used to call it the ABC question. Oftentimes when we used to go to pastors' conferences or conventions, and you'd meet guys you hadn't seen since the previous year that were pastoring in another province or another city. You know, you're asking questions, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. And inevitably, the ABC questions would come up. Not literally, but what we, that was an abbreviation for questions along the lines of, so hey brother, I'm just I'm just curious, what's what's God doing in your um in your church? How's your here's the A, how's your attendance? B, um, hey, what's your building like? Did I heard you did like a building expansion or oh, I heard you're moving or did you, hey, did you did you purchase that land? And the C is uh, what's your cash flow like? So these are very measurable things and in, in, in pastoral conversations we often measure success by oh what's your attendance what's your building like what's your cash flow like now are these things we should never talk about no we can talk about these things the bible talks about numbers if you realize that numbers represent human beings obviously you want to win as many people as possible there's nothing wrong with wanting to grow your ministry and grow your church there's nothing wrong with wanting a decent building. I mean, why should the church have beat up old smelly buildings when the people in the church are living in functional houses? There's nothing wrong with discussing cash flow and God's provision. We we want our people to be made aware of how money's being spent and how God is blessing us. But they are secondary considerations. And if you're in a relationship with another church leader and all they're they're concerned about is the ABCs, attendance building and cash flow, it's probably symptomatic of envy or maybe just shallow thinking about what true success is in in the life of of the church. Uh, Sometimes we see this, uh, social media is interesting because it kind of gives you a bit of a window into people's souls. So you'll see um, a ministry leader, another church post, or even our church post, something that's coming up, a baptismal service, or um, somebody just got their fines uh, thrown out in court, you know, COVID fines, or a new pastor was just installed at a church, and the church is celebrating that, declaring it to the community. And then again, you have the hijackers that come in, and they hijack the post, and they post something about their church, or We've had this where we, we put a post out about our Christian school and someone else hijacks our post and wants to post about their school or to defend their homeschooling choices. Like, okay, we're not we're not competing with you. Mm-hmm. You might think we are, but we're not competing with you. We we're doing what we're doing because we think it is the best model. 
and we're, we're committed to ministry that is progressive and effective, and we do want positive control over the things we invest our time and talents and energy in, but our school or our church or our youth group or men's ministry or women's ministry or youth ministries or whatever it might be are not there to compete with yours. Mm-hmm. So knock it off. Uh, if you want to post about your school, your church, your accomplishments, your successes, post them on your own wall. <laughs> but we see that envy, and I also think it's socially awkward because you make yourself look kind of foolish by doing that kind of thing. But this is the kind of compromise that we see in ministry. And and envy then needs to be addressed. So if you if you... It's unwise to assume motive, and we all do to a degree, but when, we, when we're made aware of it, we need to retract. If you say things like or imply, mega churches are all bad. Okay, let's go tell John MacArthur that. He's a bad man. Mega church pastors are just, they're bad. You know, they're, they're filled with pride. Okay, so what you're saying is John MacArthur's disqualified himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, big is bad in your mind? Uh, this there's there's nothing there's no exegetical foundation to that, and there's not even any logic to it. But if you're going to start a Christian blog, and you're going to trash churches or Christian ministries, you're never going to go after a Baptist church of fifty people in some rural area where the pastor just ran off the secretary and there's false teaching being taught in the church because there's nothing salacious about it. There's nothing, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. But when the big church has a problem, everybody wants to know and they're they're quick to criticize because, because of envy. Because at the end of the day, they want what that church has, had or has. Mm. So, you know, of course, everyone's free to start their own church or school or college or business if it blesses others, but we mustn't, we shouldn't even plant churches or start new colleges out of envy. We start them because there's a need, there's a deficit that we're trying to fill, or God has uniquely equipped us for it, but it's totally gross and anticlimactic when you are starting ministries because you're trying to compete with other churches in town. I don't want to compete with anybody. I want to do what God has called us to do and if he blesses us with it, so be it. But it's 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 super freeing to be called um, to to live your life based upon principles, based upon conviction, but but not not to make your decisions to pursue relationships, to interact with other families, to interact in business or in the church out of some sort of spiteful envy and contempt for others. Mm-hmm. But I I think it's extremely common in the church today. Yeah. Just as you mentioned that some people minister out of envy and Paul said, you know, basically at the end of the day, the gospel is preached. Exactly. I was just reading that recently. So it's not justifying their behavior, but at the same time, you can't spend all your time running around correcting people that are envious. And this sounds, it's it's hard to wrap your mind around this, but the Lord can use very ungodly people to lead other people to Christ. In fact, I'm going to step out on a limb here. The Lord can actually use unregenerate preachers to lead people to himself. We've had three former pastor 
elders in our church from this is many many years ago who now are not christians mm-hmm. to be specific one's not a functional christian is living in rampant unconfessed sin and two have um one is is a her- a moral heretic and the other has literally abandoned all right. complete yeah. all all christian orthodoxy but if you were to rewind the clock 10 15 years for all intents and purposes they looked act and smelt like christians they preached the gospel and people were ministered to by them mm-hmm. so while while that doesn't mean that we should just get anybody to preach the gospel at the time we thought for all intents and purposes these were bona fide brothers in christ people were blessed by them but over time their lack of perseverance and their apostasy has revealed they were never believers in the first place mm-hmm. so the lord the lord can the lord can use pastors that struggle with envy, parents that struggle with envy, employees that struggle with envy in his own redemptive ways, but that doesn't mean we should excuse it in our our lives. That's right. So we know all sin is destructive. We've talked about that multiple times, but specifically, how would you say envy causes destruction in our lives and in our relationships? So we've focused most of our discussion up till now on envy as it manifests itself in relationships between one human and another human or between a group of humans and another group of humans. But let's just take it in a little bit of a different direction now. Let's talk about how envy is an assault on and an, and an offense to God. Fundamental to our doctrine of God is his goodness. He is good, he is loving, he is benevolent. And God expresses his goodness and his benevolence and love to us through provision. Think of the Lord's Prayer. We pray that that God would give us our daily bread. We pray that in confidence because God is a provisionary God. The Bible talks about, you know, what what if it's if a child goes to his his father and says, Dad, I'm hungry, I need a loaf of bread, is he gonna give him a stone? Is he gonna give him a snake? No, he's gonna he loves his child, so he provides bread for his child. And that's a picture of God. So when we go to God and we say, Lord, give us our daily bread, we do so because we believe that God is a provisionary God. When we envy what we do not have but which another person has, and we demonstrate contempt for what that person has. This is an offense to the provisionary nature of God. It's saying, God, you did not provide for me what you should have provided for me. It's an accusation, actually, of wrongdoing, of sin against a holy God. So think about that. When we envy that which we do not have and assume that we deserve it, we should have it, we should own it, we may not have this in the forefront of our mind, but in the back of our mind, we're actually accusing God of sin, that God has not provided for me, that God has not given me that which I deserve. I should be better looking. I should be smarter. I should be married. I should have more children. I should have a bigger church. I should have more attention in the world. They should have, a, they should have published my books. My kids should have been the valedictorian. My child should have been the captain of the soccer team. You might be demonstrating all that angst and that contempt and that envy toward another human being, but you are actually assaulting the nature of God as a God who is benevolent and who stewards to us in different measures. One person might get one talent, 
and they are responsible to steward that talent. Another person might get three talents. Another person might get five talents. Not everybody comes into this world with the same capacity, Mm -hmm. and not everybody gets the same stewardship. What we have in common is we enter naked and we exit naked. But in in the interim, during these earthly lives of ours, we have a stewardship given to us in the form of a body that's going to live for, in, in God's sovereign plan, a predetermined period of time. We have an intellect. We have family relationships. We have a culture. We have ministry opportunities, whatever it might be. This is our stewardship. We don't own it. We just steward it. And when we show contempt for that which we do not have, which is also often tied to not showing appreciation for what we do have, we are actually accusing God of wrongdoing. So this is why this sin needs to be nipped in the bud like now mm-hmm. in, in each of our lives. Secondly, it's personally very painful. There are There is no good that comes about as a result of envy. It robs us of peace and it robs us of contentment. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, It helps us to understand this where the text says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, meaning that uh, a heart that's at peace, a heart that's content, brings life to the flesh. You feel alive. You feel at ease when you're in a state of tranquility, when you're in a state of contentment, when you're thankful for what you have. But then the, the passage goes on to say, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy is like a cancer that creeps into the deepest recesses of our souls. And this is why the analogy there is of the bones, because the bones are part of our structure, our structural makeup. We don't see them. They're inside of us. We feel them, but they're they're deep within our, our bodies. And the, the sin of envy disturbs us not just on the surface, but it disturbs us deep down. So we lose peace, we lose sleep, we, we live our lives this angst, and it's, it's so freeing to say, I, I believe in the provisionary nature of God. And Chris, if you live longer than I do, mm-hmm. if you're better looking than I am, which is a stretch, but let's just say <laughs> theoretically, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you're better looking than I am, if you're smarter than I am, if you have more opportunities in life than I do, if you live in a better country than I do, God bless you, bro. Mm-hmm. That's where peace comes. But if I'm like, man, I, I want to be like Chris. I want to have what Chris has. There's no peace. There's no tranquility that comes from that position in life. And then we're all called to work. Work is redemptive. We've talked about that in other shows. Work is redemptive. When we were put in the garden, we were put there to tend it. This is before sin entered into the world. So if you got the mindset, oh, before sin entered the world, God's God's plan was us for, you know, sit around on the beaches of Eden and drink pina coladas all day and, you know, listen to reggae music. No, that wasn't God's intention. God creates. God is the the true gardener, the ultimate gardener, that 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 constant gardener. We, as his stewards, have dominion over and are to tend to creation, to bring it into, a, a, to, to tame it, to domesticate it, mm-hmm. to 
tend to it. And in that, in those actions, what we're demonstrating is a proper understanding of stewardship under the lordship of Christ. And in that respect, when we work, we should, and, and work, of course, we know because of sin, there's that toil that's spoken of in Genesis 3, the sweat of the brow, the thorns we gotta pull. And I think I think you and I are a lot alike in this regard, in that when it comes to work, we're, we're well aware that sometimes it's exhausting and painful, but we actually enjoy it. Like we actually enjoy it. We, we want to build things. We want to write good sermons. We want to organize things. We want to tend to our properties. We wanna, we wanna engage. Our, our, our worldview isn't one of, oh, can't wait to retire. Thank God it's Friday. Oh, it's Monday. Oh, I don't, I don't, oh, I don't wanna work. I wanna just be lazy. I want everyone else to serve me. That's not Chris Eelman's mindset. It's not Aaron Rock's mindset. Because when we've looked at the Word of God, we've discovered that work is redemptive. There's there's something satisfying about writing a good sermon, even if other people don't think it is. There's something satisfying about renovating a room or chopping firewood or what, painting a wall or whatever it might be. There's something redemptive about that. There's something hu- very human about that. But... If envy leaks in, what envy does is it makes all work bad. Because like, no matter what I do, I don't have what I want. I, I'm not content with what I have. So one of the benefits of work is result. Mm-hmm. You work hard, you risk, you get a result. This is why people get up. They go to work because if I, if, I, if I drive from A to B and I work hard, there's a benefit. It's called a paycheck, a promotion, satisfaction contributing to technological advancement, saving lives, rescuing people from damnation. There's a benefit to that. And there's nothing bad with looking for the benefit. But the person whose life is riddled with envy and content, a, a discontentment is unable to enjoy what they have because they're always wanting something someone else has. Mm-hmm. So if the motivation for work is purely competitive or you, you're you struggling with, with envy. It robs you of the chance to enjoy work for the sake of work and for the glory of God. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse, verse four says, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor this also is vanity, a striving after the wind. Mm-hmm. So in that context, Solomon, of course, is playing the role of the pessimist and he's looking at life from a horizontal perspective and he's looking around and he's making general observations of life and basically pointing out that work stinks, work is horrible, work is vanity, work is useless. It's, trying to, it's like trying to catch the wind, which is impossible to do if, and he observes this, that our work is driven by an envy for what our neighbor has. So if you want to live a more contented life and a more peaceful life, you have to you have to denounce envy in your life and get rid of it. It doesn't benefit you, it does not honor God, and it doesn't benefit relationships at all. It's terrible, so get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Which leads then, I think, naturally to the question, okay, how do we get rid of envy? Mm-hmm. What's the solution, I imagine, tied to contentment, but what is your... Yeah 
wisdom there. Yeah. Well, like any sin, we have to see it and acknowledge it or identify it in our lives. And if in listening to this podcast or reading some of the biblical texts, you just feel a certain conviction in your life, then there you have it. There's envy there. And you have to, and even if it's not a besetting sin, so a besetting sin is one that's really gripping and it's dominates your life. Even if it's not a besetting sin, if it's a minor sin, put it in the forefront of your mind, know what it is, know what it looks like, know how it expresses itself and identify it in your life. So then when, once you've identified sin in your life, of course, the next step, 1 John 1, 9, is you confess it. We confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. So we have to identify sin first. And it's kind of hard to identify sin if you're not spending any time in the Word of God, if you're not listening to good preaching, if you're not mulling over spiritual matters. But uh, presuming you're doing that, you you identify it, you confess it. And then in terms of smothering it, getting it out of your life, there's a couple things you should probably be doing to replace it with contentment and satisfaction and gratitude. And one would be to regularly survey your blessings and give thanks to God for them. So I don't want to be formulaic in prayer, but many years ago, someone said, hey, prayer follows the ACTS acrostic, A-C-T-S. And again, it's, it's not the only way to pray. There's probably some deficits to it, but I kind of leaned in like, well, what is that? Well, there's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Supplication is the asking part of prayer. So I thought, well, that, that's interesting. There's some sense to that. So when I pray, I might start off by adoring God, praising him, giving him honor for who he is. Then I move into my confession. I confess my sins to the Lord. And then I thank him for what he's done. And then finally, I get to the asks. Unfortunately, many of us put the asks at the beginning, the middle, and the end. But there's some logic to that. I want to exalt him, acknowledge his grandeur and supremacy, then confess then thank him, and then finally end with my asks. Now, when it comes to the T, which is what we're discussing right now, thankfulness, I have a suspicion that if each of us spent enough time mulling over the things that we were thankful for, we would actually have to truncate our prayers. We would have to shorten them because there are so many things, like so many things to be thankful for. The fact that you're alive, when was the last time you thanked God for the fact that you are alive? When was the last time you thanked God for the country that you live in? I mean, there's a lot of problems in our country, but there's also a lot of blessings in our country. When was the last time you thanked God for those things? Like down to the details. Thank God for the fact that we have paved roads, that there's lines on the roads, that there's ditches that take the water off the roads. Mm -hmm. We had a major storm in our area last night. There's a six-foot ditch out front of our house filled to the absolute top. Six feet, probably seven feet of water, maybe even wow. eight to the bottom. There's a ton load of water in, in that area. Thank God for ditches. Yep. When was the last time you prayed that in your prayer? Lord, I want to thank you today for ditches. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Thank God for electricity. Thank God for running water. And on and on and on. Thank, thank you, Lord, for the intricacy of animals, of plant life, of opportunities, of language. Thank God for sunny days. Thank God for rainy days. Thanking God for every food item that's in your pantry. Most people walk into their pantry, if you add up all spices and condiments and whatnot, you could have several hundred food items. A lot of people throughout history, they had bread and meat or maybe eggs and bacon or whatever it might be. We got hundreds of options. We get into grocery stores. and There's all sorts of options. When was the last time you walked through a grocery store and thank God for mushroom soup and tomato soup and minestrone and <laughs> tuna and salmon and... Yeah, well. Okay, okay, okay so, <laughs> so let's get to the good stuff, T-bones. Exactly. And, <laughs> yeah, it's easier to say thank you for some things. <laughs> Baked potatoes. And, but when was the last time you thank God for every individual... We pray for our food, Lord, thank you for the food. But what about, hey, Lord, I want to thank you for these carrots. I want to thank you for this meat. In fact, I'll, this just brings to mind, many years ago, I was with my friend Matt, and we went up to his dad's house in Wallaceburg, and his father led us in prayer, and they had just got some peaches um, given to them. And this old Dutch Christian man started off this prayer, and there was it, it, when I when I tell you about it, it seems very simple, but there was something I would just say very special and heartening, kind of sweet and beautiful about his prayer. And I remember him praying very earnestly. He said, "Lord, I just want to thank you so much for these peaches," and he named them that you have provided for us. And I, I'm not sure I had ever heard anyone pray with that much earnestness for one particular food item on the table. And it actually stirred my heart. It still does when I recall that story. And it might sound kind of silly to some of our listeners, but in the moment I'm like, wow, this is a godly man who just really appreciates his peaches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's a song about peaches, I think. Uh, loving peaches. I can't remember. I wish I could recall it right now. Oh, this is, there's a song about. I'm just thinking about lemon trees. <laughs> <laughs> but what is? I could go on and on and on. Yeah. Just identifying things that we're thankful for. I talked to my um, my in-laws. They're they grew up. People would call them like Mexican Mennonites. They're they're German, low German Mennonites who grew up in Mexico. And my father-in-law Cornelius told me uh, about the time they finally built their first bathtub out of concrete. Mm. Most of us, you know, have a couple showers in our homes. We dive in, we're in and out. But this was a new thing. When was the last time you thanked God for your bathtub, your acrylic bathtub, or your shower? There was a time when people didn't have bathtubs. They had packed dirt floors, right? Um, we should be so thankful for what we have. And the, and the more, the more you load up your prayer and your worship life with thanksgiving, the more you necessarily exclude envy. Envy envy just is squeezed out out the sides. It's just it's gone. It has no there's no place for envy in the life of someone who's thankful. And then finally actively encourage others for what they have. Chris, hey man, way to go. I, I'm I'm glad you you received that promotion. Happy for you, man. Hey, I heard you just graduated. Hey, right on. That's a wonderful thing. Um, hey, way to go, man. You just you you got that ribbon on at the track meet. Hey, I'm really, really proud of you. Hey, I'm thankful that you're I've heard your church is growing, that people are coming to faith in Christ. 
praying for you, man. You do that and you won't have room for envy in your life. You won't have it. So we identify it, we confess it, we load up our lives with thanksgiving words to God, and we learn to compliment others and find joy and happiness in their successes. Really what we would call those is their stewardship. And envy's gonzo, and it no longer has room to grow in your life. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, for sure. Well, this is, yeah, the sixth of seven. So we got one more. I'm I'm losing place. What's our last deadly sin? Wrath. Wrath. Okay. So tune in another time. Hopefully we'll cover <laughs> wrath. But thanks, Aaron, for covering Envy so well. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. You've obviously seen fit to listen to the end because you're hearing this. So you must think the podcast is valuable. So hopefully it's valuable enough to share. So please take a moment to share it out on social media, send it in a text to somebody and Hopefully it's a blessing to more and more listeners. If you need a place to access this, you're obviously listening to it somewhere, but it's also over at the pursuitofglory.org website, a resourcing site of Pastor Aaron's, as well as Fight the Fight Laugh Feast Network and their uh, app, which has recently gotten a nice clean refresh. So take a look at that and uh, hopefully that'll be useful. We hope you'll tune in next week again to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. Moving to the country gonna eat a lot of peaches I'm moving to the country I'm gonna 